What does it mean to have a spiritual life? What does God want us to be like? How can we be that way? What does it mean to relate to God? You know, the 33-year-old recent convert, Augustine, when he was preparing for his baptism, he spent his time just reading the Psalms. He studied the Psalms. He prayed, and as he wrote, he, he wept through them again and again. That's how he said he learned to pray. Well, friends, as we turn to the Psalms this morning, I pray that we can begin to hear in this psalm and find what we are searching for. I pray that God may even teach us what we should be in Him. We can begin to hear the gospel only when we know we're in trouble. And I pray that each of us here this morning will see the good news there is in Psalm 4. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Please be seated. Simple question. How can I have peace? As we walk through Psalm 4, I want us to see three lessons this morning. Number one, depend on God. And if you're taking notes, that's in verse 1. Sorry, Andy's an engineer. I know he gives you these notes ahead of time. I was a history major. I don't give notes ahead of time. I give them verbally. So you just have to learn to listen and, and write them down. So number one, depend on God. That's verse one. Number two, accept God's truth. That's verses two to five. And then number three, enjoy God. Experience his joy and peace. That's verses six to eight. So let's begin. First, we want to see in this psalm an encouragement to depend on God. And very practically, that means that we should pray. Uh, we should see uh, right the dependence that David's himself showing in verse 1. We depend on God for answering and hearing prayer. That's what we see him doing here, isn't it? Verse 1, answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. There at the end of verse 1, hear my prayer. So David is turning to God, and he's asking him to hear and answer his call. Now, some people may think it's strange that David would even bother asking God to hear his prayer, because they just assume that that's what God is there to do. That's what his job is, kind of like an invisible version of Aladdin's genie. But we shouldn't be so quick. We should not presume that God has any obligation by virtue of his having created us to heed our prayers. Because we have separated ourselves from God by our sins. And because He is really good, 
and we are really not, we have broken that relationship with God by nature. But as God's children adopted in Christ, we Christians can ask God to hear us, and in fact, we should not be slow in approaching Him with our needs. Here in the Old Testament, those in the Old Testament we see who were in the stream of God's special revealing of Himself through Abraham and Moses, through Elijah and Samuel and the prophets, well, these two were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, as Paul later explains in Romans chapter 4. So David, too, had access to God and confidence to go to Him in prayer. He could depend upon Him for answering and hearing prayer. So he would also depend on God for relief from distress. You see that request right there in verse 1, give me relief from my distress. And that brings us to ask the question, well, what was the distress in David's life? What's going on right here? Well, the the psalm doesn't come with an exact date on it, but it seems from this and from verse 2 that this fourth psalm was written during some kind of trying period in David's life. Uh, Many have suggested that it was a trial, it's the same trial as we see in Psalm 3. When David is evacuating Jerusalem during the rebellion led by his much-loved son Absalom. What a terrible trial to go through. Friend, you realize that troubles will either drive you from God or drive you to God. Hard times wash away and wipe out those passing things that we tend to trust in and expose the true foundation of our hopes. God alone is our sure and certain help, and hard times remind us of that. Andy and Christy, in these kind of anniversary times, everybody will remember the good things that the Lord has done, as well they should. But it's appropriate, too, that in these last couple of decades, among other lessons, you've learned to trust God in hard times, because He's glorified by that. It's no mistake that's been made. He gets the glory. He's trustworthy completely. Friends, your hard times may be big or small. During such times, look and see. Where do you go for relief? In a crowd this size, there are people who have had hard times this very week, this very morning, coming to church some. Where do you go for help? Others of you may find yourself enmeshed in small trials, perhaps of discouragement. Maybe a friend has disparaged you who doesn't share your faith. Maybe you've even been trying to witness to them. Friend, you're not the only person ever to be bad-mouthed by the very people you're trying to help. You get no special awards for that. We can be ill-spoken of even when we're trying to do good. That's actually a very common affliction in the lives of Christians. That tends to mark our lives. So far does it make us special, unusual, advanced saints worthy of all kinds of extra honor from everybody else if they only knew what we put up with. It actually makes us following the exact way Jesus went. It's the common lot of Christians. Well, friend, whatever your child is, your, your trial is, if you are relying on God, you can depend upon Him for relief from distress. So go to Him in prayer, as David does here. We should also notice in this first verse that we can depend on God for mercy. You see that request very clearly 
in verse 1, David's request, be merciful to me. And of course David makes this request. What other basis would someone like you or I or David ever have for approaching God? How could we approach Him on anything other than the basis of His free love and undeserved mercy? Friend, when I approach God in prayer, I have to remember that I have to come as one who has been God's enemy, who has worked in the past against Him fully and freely in my own life. Even if we come to God aggrieved by fellow humans, as David was here, our griefs don't assuage God's wrath at our own sins. The fact that you have genuinely been a victim of someone else's evil gives you zero credit with God. It's not that God has no compassion. He's a God of great compassion. But your sufferings do nothing to atone for your sins. In our current culture of exaltation of victimhood, we've got to remember that. Friends, I'm very thankful for us as a society understanding more of what justice is trying to enter more empathetically into each other's sufferings. That is good Christ-like stuff to do. But it is demonic to think that your suffering or mine ever gains God's favor. Suffering oppressed people sin against God. People who oppress sin against God. Everyone sins against God. Our only ability to approach God is His great mercy and grace. Friends, in order for God to help us, He must be merciful. And it is the mercy of God and His mercy alone that we really need, and we find that only in Christ. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me just speak on behalf of this congregation. We're very glad you're here. We invite you to come back any Sunday morning. You're always welcome to be here. Every Sunday, a group of Christians like this gathers here to celebrate the hope we have and the fact that Jesus got up from the dead, that the grave is not the end, that there is a hope that's greater than the things you most wish for this week. Because you've been made in the image of God, you have a great responsibility with your life, even if you don't believe in God. You have a responsibility to live in allegiance to Him, in submission to Him, in celebration of Him, and frankly, Friend, although I don't know you personally, I can tell you from the Bible, you are utterly and completely failing at that. And because God is really good, He will punish you eternally. You have no hope that will last, except for what God has done in His love and mercy. Friend, in that sense, your sin is like the sins of every single one of us here. doesn't matter if you were born Buddhist or Baptist or atheist. All of us are born made in God's image but born in sin against God. We confirm that by our own sin. And because of that, we stand under His good and right condemnation. And our only hope is what He's done in Christ. You see, He sent His only Son to live a life of perfect trust in His heavenly Father, to live the kind of life that all of us should have lived and none of us have. And then Jesus, having no need to die because He had never sinned, He died on the cross as a substitute in the place of all of us who would ever turn from our sins and trust in Him. God raised him from the dead to show that he accepted that sacrifice. He ascended to heaven and presented that sacrifice to his heavenly Father. He calls us all now to turn from our sins and trust in him, and we can have forgiveness and new life. And friend, that's you today. You can have that forgiveness and new life. You can understand what this mercy is here that David talks about. If you want to know this, know more about this, 
I'm not sure you could be in a better place this morning. Just talk to the people next to you when the service is done. Just ask them what it means. Uh, Andy will be standing in the back afterwards, even on his anniversary. He'd love to talk to you about what it means that Christ has died as a sacrifice for sinners. Turn from your sins and find peace with God. If you would have peace, you must, like David here, depend on God and depend on Him alone. Find out what that means in your own life. There's another thing that you should do, and that is, number two, to accept God's truth. We see this is the middle part of Psalm 4, if you look verses 2 to 5. The fact that we should believe and obey God's truth, we see that we should believe it. So look, look down at Psalm chapter 4, or Psalm 4, look at verse 2. First, of course, that simply means don't reject it. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? So in these two questions, David challenges his opponent's unbelief in their rejection of God's word and will. Sometimes people are a little confused by that language there in verse 2 of of a human referring to my glory. Well, I think this is simply meaning David's honor as a ruler, uh, as an honored person. But these people were apparently rejecting that. His honor and all that was due him was being replaced by rejection. It was being turned into shame. Now, exactly how, we don't know. We're not told. Certainly, if this is from the time of Absalom's rebellion, we can understand very well how that would be happening. The very son he loved was bringing disgrace on him by rejecting God's anointing on David's leadership and wrongly challenging him. And then in the second question here, David presses them on on why they persist in their unbelief, their acceptance of falsehoods, either about him or his own divine calling, or or even about God himself. It's, It's a piercing question, isn't it? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Perhaps the greatest preacher in the history of the Christian church certainly the greatest preacher in the early centuries of the Christian church, was Chrysostom, golden-mouthed. And Chrysostom once said that if he were the fittest in the world to preach a sermon to the whole world, gathered together in one congregation, and on some high mountain had it for his pulpit, where he might have prospect of all the world in his view, and were furnished with a voice of brass, a voice as loud as the trumpets of the archangel, that all the worlds might hear him. He would choose to preach upon no other text than this verse and this question. Psalm 4, verse 2. How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Surely this is a question we need to put to our own hearts. And then if we, like David, believe and trust in God for his word and his mercy, then this is the question that we too should want to put to those near and far. How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? By these questions, David is chiding his enemies, both for their rejection of him, but also for their idolatrous rejection of the God who had chosen David in the first place. It was no less than a rejection of God himself. That was behind their rejection of God's anointed. And so today, too, the first step in accepting God's truth and believing it is simply not to reject it. 
but we must also understand it. And that's what David turns to in verse 3. He gives two things that they should know. First, he says, know that God has set apart the godly for himself. That's what he says there in verse 3. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The godly there is in the singular, but the word is used collectively. It's referring to a type, just like we do in English. That's why we have a question here in how we're to take this. It says the godly, but does that mean those who are godly and who therefore collectively make up the godly? Yeah, I think so. I think that's what David's saying here. Also, though, it is specifically referring to David himself. Because, you see, it was David that God had specially chosen. And it seems to be David that some were now rejecting. And David warns his opponents that in rejecting him, they were rejecting God's choice. And they needed to know this. God's will was behind David's reign. He was the Lord's specially anointed, his chosen one. Now, of course, that earthly kingdom is long ago past. But there is another anointed one of God's special choosing, whose reign was only dimly foreshadowed by David's reign. Jesus Christ, too, is the Lord's anointed. He has been specially chosen and set apart, filled with God's Spirit and used for God's purpose. And even as these people of old were not to lift their hand against David, lest they lift their hands against God's chosen one, so we too must be careful not to lift our hand, not to oppose Christ, for he is even more fully the Lord's anointed. And we too, in Christ, are the Lord's anointed. We have been set apart by God to be his specially. God's will is behind our faith as well. His Spirit is responsible for our new life in Christ. It is God that has brought each one of us to life spiritually here who is a Christian this morning. Consider for a moment God has set us apart for Himself. We are His chosen. We are His special treasure. This is why any opposition to God's people is in vain. It's doomed to failure. So God alone is to be our Lord. He has set us apart for himself. We are his. God wanted his antagonists to beware, to consider that they were dealing not just with him, but with the God who calls his own people. Now, just so so you know, and maybe they have something to argue about over lunch, I think those are the various levels of meaning of that text. It's initially about David, who was quite literally the the Lord's physically anointed king of Israel. David is a type of Christ, so it's pointing to Christ. But then in Christ, beyond that, the application to all of us who are in Christ. This is not about your pastor. So if anyone ever says, don't disagree with the pastor because that's touching the Lord's anointed, I think only in the most extended way could you make that application. And if Andy starts to make that application very prominently, I would encourage you to give me a phone call. If you're attending a church where that phrase is constantly used whenever you have an idea other than the pastors, leave that church. The anointed of the Lord in this passage is David. David is a type of Christ. And all who are Christians are in Christ. We all face the opposition that there is from the world. So, David also said that I want them to know that God will hear my prayer. That's in the second half of verse 3. 
the Lord will hear when I call to him. And this really follows from the previous statement. David's confidence was based not upon his own innate claims on God, but on the fact that God had called him. So he knew since God had called him, God would listen to him. God would hear and honor his prayer. Friends, we are in that situation as Christians. We can be certain that God will hear and honor our prayer. If God has chosen us, he will hear us. Calvin put this so well, without this comfort, the faithful must inevitably sink into despondency every moment. But we don't have to. We can be encouraged by David's experience here. If God has heard the prayers of the saints in the past, like David, he will hear our prayers in Christ. But not only should we believe God's truth, we should do it. We truly accept it by doing it. Uh, here we find that we should obey God's, word, will, God's will, particularly in matters concerning yourself. You see his instruction there in verse 4. Do not sin in your anger. In your anger, do not sin. I don't know about you, but I think this psalm has a kind of air of righteous indignation about it. Uh, as we've said, others were causing David trouble. Perhaps it was Absalom. Well, here David is counseling others not to make this angering disturbance a cause for or an occasion of sin. In fact, he seems to even be counseling those very same people who were turning his glory to shame, loving delusions, seeking false gods. He's addressed them here in verse 2, and then at the beginning of verse 3, there's this connective in the Hebrew, but or and, that makes it clear he's addressing these same imperatives in verses 3 to 5. No, don't sin, search, be silent, offer, trust. He's addressing these instructions to the same ones that he had decried and that he'd pled with in verse 2. So, so what he's saying here is be careful. Control yourself. Speak to yourself before you find yourself being led into sin by your passions. Friends, we must especially be aware of sin when our passions are high, whether in anger or awe or fear. You really need to master the art of talking to yourself. You must learn how to talk to yourself. Proverbs is full of exhortations to consider your ways. That's why David goes on to exhort the people here in verse 4 to search your hearts. You see that in the end of verse 4? When you are on your beds, search your hearts. He gives them practical advice even on how that we can do this. He says to do this when we are on our beds. We should take account of ourselves. Have you learned that very simple lesson that self-control comes only through self-examination. If you won't take the time to examine yourself, you, you can't in any effective way control what you do. Friends, we should examine ourselves. We must know ourselves in order to guard ourselves from sin. So just consider reviewing your day. When you get ready to go to bed tonight, take a moment to think what you did with each hour. At nine o'clock, I was doing this. At 10 o'clock, I was doing this. At 11 o'clock, I was doing... Not, how long would that take? It's not that long. How much appropriate thanks to God would you find in that? 
How much reason for prayer? Don't thoughtlessly go through day after day as if you have an endless supply of them. As if your time will never come to an end. Spend time considering what you're giving your life for minute by minute and how you're doing it and how it lines up with God's Word. And there's no doubt that truth and honesty with ourselves often more easily appears when we're alone. Confronted aloud by someone else, we may resist an idea or criticism. I remember when I was a college student here in town. 40 years ago, I was a freshman uh, at Duke. And I remember eating in what we called the pits at the time in the West Campus, big gothic place where they feed the undergrads. And uh, I remember sitting there, and a friend who was a law major uh, sitting across from me began to offer me some critical feedback. I very quickly deployed my ability to answer all of his critical feedback. I let him know the reasons why I did every single thing I'd done, and my reasons were excellent. And when I was just beginning to warm to the task, Glenn lovingly looked at me and interrupted me and said, shut up. Glenn wasn't angry. Glenn loved me. He said, Mark, you're very, very quick on your feet, okay? You might be right in like 80% of what you're saying, but there is that other 20%, and if you are ever going to learn anything in your life, you've got to learn to shut up. If somebody says something to you and it's false, it doesn't hurt you. Don't worry about it. But the only way you're ever going to hear what's true is if you will close your mouth and not quickly offer a justification. Just listen for a minute. Well, David's kind of saying that here. Search yourselves. On your bed at night, go back and think. When all the others are gone and none but God is our witness, then we can sometimes hear and consider something more carefully and honestly than we can in the rush of the day, the push and pull of our daily interactions, trying to establish truth on blogs with open comments or on Facebook or Twitter? Really? I don't think so. You can put out things that are self-evidently true or maybe a little provocative, but very rare is the man or woman who can carry a sustained, careful, honest, self-examining intellectual search online with brief comments back and forth. That just doesn't really work. Now, we're going to need some time for reflection. We need some time. Look at verse 4, what he says. Be silent. Be silent. Translate that offline. The most important comments you can close sometimes are your own. Silence aids reflections. It stops our rushed exporting of words to others, especially when we're stirred or we're angry, and encourages us to sit with our own thoughts. Friends, a simple thing that could most improve a lot of church services I've been in, other than having biblical preaching, would be replacing the fear of dead air time with a patient, holy reflectiveness that allows for time, for awe and consideration and speaking to God and to ourselves before we start chatting to others. I think very much like Andy, at the end of our services, I tend to walk to the back and just stand there. I tend to stand there absolutely forever. 
I am no, I, for a long time, I was the last one there in the church building. I have aged so much, and my sneaky congregation has gotten so much younger. When I went there, I was the age of the grandchildren of the people I was preaching to. They were in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and I was in my 30s. Well, now, I've promoted pretty much all those people to glory, and, well, the Lord promoted them. I saw them off with a ceremony, you know, but... Uh, my peers didn't bother coming, but they sent their children. So we dropped down three generations in about 20 years. And so now they, they, their legs outlast mine and they stand around and talk to each other absolutely forever. But still, after they have sat through one of our four and a half hour long morning services, I slightly exaggerate, um, very carefully crafted. You know what they comment on when they leave? Oh, well, they'll comment on the sermon. But other than the sermon, the thing they comment on most, maybe, along with the singing, would be the silence, the thing that costs us nothing. It doesn't take that much time. But at the beginning of every service, we should have a time of silence. And at the end of every service, after the benediction, we just ask people, please be seated for a few moments of quiet reflection. And then, you know, I've instructed the pianist to, like, don't do anything for about a minute. And then after about a minute, being quietly playing what we just sang. Don't launch into a big Bach fugue. I mean, just quietly bring back into their mind what we were just singing about. Friends, those old times of silence give us time to reflect. Kind of get our spiritual shopping ready to go. Okay, I learned this. I felt convicted about this. Really encouraged by this. Lord, thank you for that. Okay, I can edifyingly talk to others now. Friends, silence helps us reflect. It's true for us as individuals. We need to allow time in our day for withdrawn reflection and prayer. In, in your normal schedule, let's take a rock and throw it and hit a day at random. Last Thursday, all right? Three days ago. Did you have any time for reflection? You remember what you did last Thursday, three days ago? Did you have any time where you asked yourself questions about that day before it was gone? In the rush of your normal day, when can you ever take the time or care to probe your conscience? Friends, be still. Be still. Even when your days and difficulties would hurry you into sin, take time to be still before the Lord. Practically, you have to do this if you're going to obey God's will in your own life. And as we go on to verse 5, we see also that David says that you should obey God's will in those matters concerning your worship of Him. He says first that you should, verse 5, right at the beginning, offer right sacrifices offer right sacrifice. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of wrong sacrifices those David was speaking to may have been offering. Maybe they were offering sacrifices to false gods. Well, those would be wrong sacrifices. Perhaps they were sacrifices wrongly offered to the true God. Well, those would be wrong sacrifices. Perhaps they were rightly offered sacrifices to the true God, but divorced from a life of genuine acceptance of God's truth and of His will as evidenced in their rejection of David. 
Those would be wrong sacrifices. Whatever was the case in particular, we have to see that no sacrifice offered can ever cover up God's will disobeyed. So you got a building program going on. Please do not make a pledge or write a check thinking it will make up for some sin you've committed against God. It doesn't work that way. You can give out of confidence in God's provision. You can give out of excitement for the vision. You can give out of gratitude to all that's given you. You can give out of good, sober stewardship thinking, you know, we've been using this building for a century, and a lot of people have heard God through this. I think if we put some more money into it in our generation, if the Lord tarries, that might help it to go on for another century and be useful like that. Great! Do not write a check thinking, I committed adultery 15 years ago that nobody knows about. I feel so bad. I'm going to write a really big check. That'll take care of it. That'll square me up with God. Don't even start writing that check. That's not what God is like. Offer right sacrifices. All the offerings that they were to make were to remind them of the holiness of God and the horror of sin and the need for an atonement in order for them to have access to God or any relationship with Him that was good and constructive at all. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament worship then pointed to the one true sacrifice that we talked about a few minutes ago that Christ would make on the cross. Friend, that's the right sacrifice that you want to share with your non-Christian friends. You want to tell them that this sacrifice has been made. And speaking of right worship, I just want to take another opportunity at this point when we're thinking about right worship to publicly acknowledge and thank God for these 20 years of ministry here where Andy and Christy, and as a pastor, I just can't help but mentioning the pastor's wife because if you think the pastor does anything without his wife, yeah, you don't know what it's like to be a pastor. It, it is a consuming activity. And if your wife is not there with you, it doesn't mean she knows everything you know. She certainly knows some things you don't know. But it means that they together have experienced what it means to lead this congregation. And while there are definitely wonderful things that are the kind of things we look back on in the 20th anniversary and celebrate, there were things that were not wonderful. And praise God for Andy's zeal for the right worship of God. Have you ever found a pastor who will more quickly take you to the Bible? Have you ever wasted your breath trying to bring an objection or correction to him that's not based in Scripture? Yeah, just, you're spitting in the wind. Don't even start. If you have an understanding, a concern for who God is, for what he's like, rooted in his word, then you'll know exactly what Andy and Christy have been doing here for the last 20 years. Brother, I thank God for how you have led in offering right sacrifices, as it were. So thank you to you. Thank you, Christy, for putting in these decades. You know, what faithful stewards you've been. Imperfect, I'm sure, but faithful stewards of this charge. And the others who've worked in leadership with Andy and Christy, they've certainly not done it alone. So all of you who have worked here to help lead the church in a right way, praise God for that. And, and why stop now? I mean, we joke about 20 years, but Andy's a very young man. Well, he's less than 58 years old. Well, I think that's very young indeed. I think you want to continue to push to make the gospel clear in everything you do. How could the gospel be more clear in your life, in your thoughts, in your speech, in your personal evangelism? You have the gospel clearly stated in your church's statement of faith. 
You have a prospective membership weekend coming up. Surely there the gospel is clear. When you interview somebody for membership in the church, surely there you make the gospel clear. In the classes you've just had before the service, surely there the gospel is clear. In the way the books of the Bible are taught here, surely the gospel is clear. In the songs and hymns that are sung, the gospel is clear. And the very rhythm of the service where we praise God, we confess our sins, we rejoice in our assurance of forgiveness through Christ alone, and the word is preached, the gospel is presented. In the way the service is led, the way everything is woven together, it's all about the gospel. Even in the sermon, when you're taking a psalm, there's an explicit gospel presentation and call in every sermon that's preached here. I just know that from talking to Andy and knowing what he's like in explaining gospel themes, in deconstructing directly or indirectly alternatives to the gospel or or questions about the gospel or anti-gospel views, in the testimonies of baptisms and in the Lord's Supper's explanation and prayer. In all of these ways, First Baptist Church can continue to make the gospel clear and even clearer if He, in His grace, gives you strength and energy and wisdom, and humility, and love enough to do that. Anyway, back to Psalm 5, Psalm 4, verse 5, offering right sacrifices. Their sacrifices had to be to the true God and not false ones, had to be offered according to the laws God had laid down, not merely in line with their own ideas, And offered in a spirit of true submission to God and humble dependence upon Him alone, and not as an expression of self-confidence in their own righteousness. Friends, if we would approach God, we must do as He tells us, because He is God. And so it is that David exhorted them to do just that here at the end of verse 5. Look at verse 5 at the end. What does he say? Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Whoever else they were being tempted to trust in, whoever else they, they were trusting in, as was evidenced by their opposition to David, they should cease and desist and trust in God alone. Only so could they obey God as He was commanding them to do. So the way then to peace is to depend on God alone, verse 1, and accept God's truth by believing it and obeying it, verses 2 to 5. But there's still one more component in this psalm that we should notice. And it is that we should enjoy God. Did you notice that here in this psalm? We should follow David's example and experience the fruit of depending on God alone that we see in verses 6 to 8. That's really what we see in these last few verses of the psalm. With, With God, we can experience joy even in times of want or lack. You see, in verse 6, there there are circumstances of want. Uh, That's what they're saying in verse 6. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Many had questions. They were wondering whether there was any good. Whoever they were, the us there in verse 6 suggests that they were faithful followers of David, but perhaps getting discouraged, even beginning to despair. Many of them cried out for something good to be shown them and shown them now. Times were bad. They felt like they were at the end of their rope. So many were asking. And you know, the the many are not always to be followed, are they? The many are not always to be followed. Even I know that as a congregationalist. You know, the, the crowds who followed Absalom in rebellion against David were wrong. 
as were the crowds who threatened Jeremiah and the crowds who called out for Christ's death. Recognizing what the Bible teaches about the authority the congregation has that has been placed in the congregation's hands, you can see from the lips of Jesus in Matthew 18, 17, or Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6, doesn't ensure that the congregation will always use its authority correctly. Correct authority can be used wrongly. The circumstances of want for the believer are fully met by the supply of God's presence. We see that in verses 6 and 7. Listen to David's prayer and affirmation here. Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their gains and new wine abound. I don't know about you, but I think this prayer is different than the one up in verse 1. You look up at verse 1, that first prayer was individual. Me, I, my. This one is more corporate. Here in verses 6 and 7, us. David was moving from simply praying for relief and mercy for himself to praying that God will shine his face upon us. He knew the fullness of God's gracious presence. And he prayed that his people would know it also and that God would satisfy the people's longings with himself. I love the corporate prayers we find in the Psalms. We find individual prayers, but even some of the individual prayers like this one here in Psalm 4 turn into a corporate prayer. You realize when we come together as a church, one of the most important things we do is to pray. That's why even in the service we've already had, this time together today, we've given time to pray. That's why those of us who lead in prayer don't pray I, we pray we and us. Because we realize if I'm up here and I'm leading in prayer, I am speaking for all of us as we turn to God to pray. So I'm picking up you as well. I'm saying we and us, our. Because I'm not just praying about my own limited personal matters in public. So I praise God for the wonderful prayer meetings that he gives us in our churches. I think David's mood seems to have changed somewhat, even during the short length of this psalm, doesn't it? David sounds much more encouraged. Maybe the truths that he was sharing with others in verses 2 to 5 encouraged him. I find that when I work on a sermon. I'm working on a sermon, I think, for other people, and I end up being encouraged by it. If I'm remembering my Puritan stories right, Thomas Goodwin saw himself converted during his own sermon on justification by faith alone, preached in Ely Cathedral. After that sermon, he felt that he realized that before that he'd never really trusted in Christ alone. And as he looked so thoroughly and carefully at it in Scripture and explained it to the people, he found he was explaining it to himself. Well, maybe here David recalled all the ways that God had assured him of his love. And what what a wonderful prayer. You know, when many people are saying, what good is there? And David prays, for the best good that there could possibly be. You realize that reintroducing us into the presence of God in a loving relationship with Him, forgiven and reconciled, is the very point of the Bible. The whole point of the Bible, the climax of it all, is over in Revelation chapter 22. If you've got your Bible, just turn there. It's the only place we're going to turn to outside of our text. Go to Revelation 22. And if you have not underlined this, I would encourage you to underline it. Verse 4, just that first phrase. Revelation 22, verse 4, it is the climax of the Bible. They will see his face. What was taken from us at the Garden of Eden is now finally and fully restored. Between the Garden of Eden and Revelation 22, 
verse 3, we are in the era of the ear where you have lousy things like sermons. But friends, there's a time coming when you won't need any preachers like me and Andy, when you will be able to see and immediately know the truth. And that is the climax of the Bible. It's kind of like God is saying, back as I was saying, and he continues history on from 22 verse, verse 4, with people made in his image in his immediate presence again. But now we're living in this gigantic bracketed period of the ear where God is working with us in our sin. But there's coming that time when they shall see God. And even, even in this life, there is some foreshadowing of that blessing as we repent of our rebellion and we trust in God's promises for us in Christ. And so in his presence, his face becomes the sunshine of our souls as we look forward to that day when the brightness of God visibly eclipses the sun itself. What a beautiful response is David's prayer to the discouragement and despair around him. David clearly knew God's goodness himself, but he prays here that God will make it obvious to others. David's very testimony belied their objection. And what a great testimony David gives here. Verse 7, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. Forty years ago, I was so shocked by the drunkenness I saw on Duke's campus. I'd been an agnostic, become a Christian in high school, came here as a young Christian, and just could not believe what I saw. I I remember seeing a poster going to the East Campus Union where we ate with a a guy just drawn there laying with X's on both of his eyes with alcohol bottles in both hands, and the party you were being invited to, they just said, come get wasted, and they gave him time and place to the party. And I thought, wow, Satan can just dispense with the illusion of pleasure. That's just the worm on the hook. He doesn't really like it anyway. So we're, we're so bad now, and this is 40 years ago, we're so bad now that he can just say, come get wasted. Well, friends, in response to that, I took this verse, verse 7, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I wrote it in big letters. I put it on a piece of poster board, and I put it on the front of my door in Pegram on the first floor near the lobby where the parties happened because I just wanted to present an alternative view of reality, you know? So whatever you all are doing that's making you throw up all over the floor that I have to walk on on Sunday morning when I go to church, there is something a lot better out there. There is the joy we have in Christ. There is a better life you can have. Brothers and sisters, are you showing that better life to others? Could people look at your life and would they have any way to see that life with the kind of God you know is any better? than the joy people have in drunkenness. It's a good thing to ask yourself. When you're laying on your bed tonight, just reflect and pray. Well, we see in verse 8, we experience peace even amid conflict. I will lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I will lie down and sleep in peace, he says. But, But hadn't David just been telling us of his distress, his shame, the discouragement of those around him. It seems like it was a time of trial for him. So how could David be so certain of good sleep? That's because of what he says at the end of verse 8. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. One writer said there's something inexpressibly touching in this laying down. 
and thus lying down, he voluntarily gave up any guardianship of himself. He resigned himself into the hands of another. He did so completely. For in the absence of all care, he slept. There was here a perfect trust in that quiet of the night, just trusting in the Lord. You know, I've worked hard since six or seven this morning. I think I can take a few hours off and leave the world to God. I think I can stand down just for a few hours and in trust in Him, I can rest. I can sleep, knowing that I'm limited and He'll keep going just fine. He's got the graveyard shift. He won't fall asleep. Everything's good. It was gloriously so with one Christian in Oxford, England, on the night of October 15, 1555. The next morning, Nicholas Ridley was to be burned to death as a heretic for believing in justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. So Ridley's brother asked him if he would like him to stay the night with him there in prison. And Nicholas Ridley declined. He said he meant to go to bed and sleep as quietly as he ever did in his life. What a marvelous testimony to Ridley's trust in God and the God in whom he trusted. That's the spirit this psalmist has in this verse. And what a, what a sweet verse it is. Martin Luther desired to hear this last verse of Psalm 4 sung to him as he died. He even asked that a requiem be composed with the setting of these words, I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This has been the verse that's been on many Christians' lips as they've died. I trust you see the relevance for us for our day. This is the kind of confidence that we need. Friends, our safety is in God alone. David knew that he needed no one else to protect him if he had but God. And he knew it. He knew his trust must be in God. Trust, you realize, is the basis of all the good David describes in this psalm. From trust came his confidence in prayer, his joy in life, his peaceful rest at night. It all came from trust in God. All that came not from changing circumstances, but from trusting in the sovereign God who had heard and answered his prayers before, who had called him and who had filled him with joy and peace even amidst the most dis desperate kind of conflict. Andy, I think in a measure, you've known that kind of peace. And I'm thankful for that. You've certainly known the blessing. So here, David experienced God and he enjoyed him. And by God's grace, so can we all. 